Hi, everyone. Just before we begin this podcast, I want to draw your attention to the reading notes for this episode, wherever you get that, Spotify, Apple, Substack. Go into that reading note. There is a two-page briefing on the BRI from today's guest, debunking and examining with high level of interrogation the Belt and Road Initiative at 10 years on. Check it out. Hello, and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-hosts, Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. Hey Sam, great to hear from you. Hello, Steve. How's it going? We were just talking. You were just knocking around Parliament a little bit earlier. You've just come from a really interesting meeting, specifically around British national overseas passport holders coming from Hong Kong and actually their ability to vote in next year's election. And actually, you were saying that this could be, for many seats, that the actual swing that could either keep a, a Conservative or incoming Labour governments. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it, it's a fascinating movement. It's that the, the group I went to go and see today launched their stuff is called Vote for Hong Kong. And their basic gist of what they are beginning to think about and touch on is, as you say, there's 160,000 BNO uh, Hong Kongers in, in the UK. If they're over the age of 18, they have a right to vote, which means this will be the first election that they'll get to vote in. Obviously, 2019 was our last general election. Now, Steve, you know as well as I do that there are uh, an unbelievable amount of seats with a sort of marginal swing of less than uh, 1%. I think there's at least 12, and then a much longer list of, of seats that are marginal. And if you see anything like the sort of swing that we had with last week's by-elections, then that also increases the number of uh, seats that are up for grabs for a Labour or SNP or whoever it is. Uh, and, and the really interesting discussion is, or the point about this is, no one's really mapped yet politically where these Hong Kongers are residing, what constituencies they're in, um, and you know, therefore, what level of influence do they have of a potential outcome? And what Vote for Hong Kong is doing, as I understand it, is trying to discuss how do we get these Hong Kongers to meet policymakers and put forward their issues? And also, I guess the inverse of that is how do we get them to sort of understand or get policymakers to understand that they actually could swing them out of their seat if they, or, or into their seat if they don't play ball, as it were. So I also think why is this is so important? Because Hong Kong traditionally Hong Kong voters go to the polls and vote, you know, and you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's a, an incredible percentage of Hong Kongers actually vote in elections. So again, when you look at what could potentially come of uh, these votes in the UK, it's really important because as you mentioned, there's some seats with 1% swing, you know, that's a couple of 100 votes. And again, if the Conservative Party or the Labour Party can win those votes, it's, it's really, really critical. So Boris Johnson's government did bring over the BNO passport holders from, from Hong Kong. Uh, we were just discussing before the podcast, we, we couldn't even remember which foreign <laughs> secretary it was, but we found out it was Dominic Raab, did a very, very good job in regards to standing up for these Hong Kong nationals' rights um, and, and bringing them back to the UK. So is there any sort of leaning kind of to generalise which way Hong Kong nationals could be swayed? Or again, is it all to play for? 
I think it's all to play for. And, you know, not to put words in their mouth, but the group I, I was at the launch of earlier on were very clear that they're a non-partisan group. These these votes are there to be won by the political party or the politicians that are willing to engage these Hong Kongers. Because uh, as you say, it doesn't need to be 40,000 Hong Kongers in one constituency. It could be 500. There are seats available with a majority of less than 400 people. And, you know, as you say, historically, Hong Kongers vote. They turn up and vote. That can't be said for all British folk in their different constituencies. And who knows how much voter apathy will affect this next general election anyway. But I think it's super fascinating. And uh, I would love to be able to say, oh, well, traditionally, they might lean towards the Conservatives or Labour. I, I, I don't even know if there's been enough research yet to work out what this is. But what an exciting sort of electoral surprise is on the horizon. I, I personally can't wait. I'm looking forward to seeing how the campaign develops. And also, I know there are other very clever people working in this space who are trying to think about that right now. So definitely, definitely something to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Last week, we asked people if they could send in our uh, questions for us. And the overwhelming responses that we had this week were around the Belt and Road Initiative. Essentially, it hasn't really been picked up or covered in in Western media, apart from the analogies around the splitting of the, the global West. Um, mm. And obviously, Vladimir Putin kind of being a keynote speaker at the event made quite an impact in, in some of the some of the media. But essentially, some of the, the main questions that we've got is, is what is it and what it does? And we're definitely going to cover that uh, a little bit later with our guest. Last week, when we recorded the podcast on Wednesday, C had just given his address, his keynote address. So that's given us about a week to kind of break down what this might all mean. So just some of my key takeaways, and these are absolutely not exhaustive. This clearly seems to be a reframing of the Belt and Road Initiative. The end goal, and this is from China phrasing, is to build a global community with a shared future. Sound amazing. But that means, you know, multiple countries, different regions, different variations of development, life cycles of countries, different cultures, different ideologies, all re-envisioned, all reimagined under the Belt and Road Initiative. To me, that signals China's further expansion into a, what they want to have as a new world order, presenting clear alternatives to the global West. But again, I would say, let's just be quite clear, clear alternatives to the United States and their framing of, of the world. And I think you can, that has been accentuated by Vladimir Putin giving the keynote address, some of the strong rhetoric coming out in regards to Russia, China, the solidarity of friendship. Uh, we've also seen a reframing of the actual projects more focused on higher quality, smaller projects. So as they're described as sort of small and beautiful, but that means green and sustainable in China's language. So for me, that's some of the, the key takeaways, Sam. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, so I obviously watched this from the perspective of how Parliament watched and digested the BRI summit. And I think it's interesting. Last year, I took part in a panel which discussed the BRI and the various initiatives that they've since rolled out. And I was asked to speak about what would failure from Western policymakers look like when it came towards the BRI and, and its various initiatives. And um, the view that I put across was, if I can read Hansard and see very few mentions, Hansard being the uh, write-outs, the transcripts of what politicians have said in Westminster, if I can read that and see very little discussion around the BRI and its various initiatives that have launched since, then that would be, for me, an indicator that's not been discussed properly in the sort of public political domain. So that's a long-winded way of saying last week there was a debate on China and the strategic threats it presents to the UK and the sort of strategic opportunities as well. Um, and that was where the BRI was mentioned at length. But outside of that, uh, the BRI was actually not mentioned in Parliament at all. Uh, you know, And that absolutely fairly can be put down to the fact that there are a number of things going on in the world today, Israel, Gaza, Hamas, 
just being one of them, that and Ukraine and Russia being another one that have drawn lots of policymakers' bandwidth towards foreign affairs issues. But it does slightly beg the question as to to what extent are politicians limited in their ability to think about more than one foreign policy issue at once? I mean, there wasn't a debate scheduled for them to discuss the BRI if you're an MP rather than a peer, but there was like almost no written questions asking what the government strategy was. It was just a, a sort of just passed by. And we may see in this coming week and, and next week, those questions start to be answered by government and roll back in. But I, I was I was shocked be the wrong word, but I was unsurprised and a bit disappointed to see how it sort of passed by Westminster. So look, we've got a guest on today who I, I, both Steve and I are sort of uh, overjoyed to have because this guy has spent the last seven years of his life thinking about the BRI as a journalist and a think tanker at the incredibly um, influential and very respected think tank Merix based in Germany. And he has traveled to many BRI countries and seen BRI projects uh, being developed from Serbia right through to the various stands. And it's a real pleasure to hear from Jacob Martel today. Well, look, Jacob, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've recently returned from travels. I'm using the word recently quite liberally there because I know it was over the summer. Can you sort of briefly explain where you were and what BRI projects, that's Belt and Road Initiative projects, you saw in those regions? Well, thanks for having me. And I have indeed uh, fairly recently returned from Serbia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and I was in the UAE as well. Uh, and it was a very condensed version of an overland trip I did in 2019, which was from the UK to Vietnam overland, which was much more exciting. But I still managed to see some um, Belt and Road projects that I'd, I'd, I'd visited before, um, stuff like highways being built in Serbia by China Road and Bridge Corporation, Saw some nice new renewable energy projects in Uzbekistan. I had a poke around the port in, uh, in the UAE, and that's about all I had time for. And, and when you're there, Jacob, uh, are you seeing, because one of the things I've seen a bit of discourse over recently online is the BRI projects basically take Chinese workers from China and then import them into the country where they're building these projects. What was sort of your view from on the ground? Were you engaging in speaking to local Chinese workers or was it local nationals of that country and those BRI projects? It really depends on the project, but in general, I would say these BRI projects associated with the BRI do have quite a sort of strong Chinese feel to them. They're, a lot of the time, um, the Chinese workers are in a, in a work camp that's sort of stationed sometime or, or some distance away from the project, and then local workers go go home to wherever they're based, and then the Chinese workers go back to their work camp, but. Are, are these Chinese nationals working there or are they a mix of local and Chinese nationals or is it actually just local locals working on these Chinese company projects? It, it really does depend on the project and the local host country requirements. But in general, what I tend to see is a mix. But they do feel very Chinese, the projects, in that there are sort of work camps often associated with them where the Chinese workers go back to, the locals go back to wherever they're based, their hometown, and then uh, the Chinese workers are usually separate. Um, again, it depends. Lots of Chinese machinery, equipment around, uh, not exclusively. But I think that's the boring answer is that it depends on the projects and the host country and what the, what requirements they're putting on the place. Could I just jump in then, Jacob? I mean, so we the, the BRI project is, is 10 years old. Do you think there's more sophistication from the countries that they're working with in regards to putting some of those clauses in place that it has to be more local employees, it has to be more local equipment, it has to be more manufacturing within the host country. 
because previously we hear kind of perceptions that it's all imported. That's an interesting question. Um, there's certainly more international awareness about it. I think to some extent it's probably still going to depend on the, the sort of <laughs> what the host country can get away with in terms of negotiations with, with China, I think. So, and, and also the extent to which they care. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking like a, a country like Tajikistan run by um, President Ramon and his, his family, a sort of um, kind of more of a, a mafia state style country where you know, national priorities aren't necessarily at the forefront of negotiations with the Chinese. And I imagine this is fairly speculative. He hasn't told me himself that it's more about sort of personal enrichment and getting money for you know, building building stuff in Dushanbe, the capital, and parliament buildings and whatever he wants personally built. So um, I, I imagine there's probably more awareness generally uh, about the need to um, negotiate uh, with, with Beijing, but I don't think it's always going to change because it's going to be sort of dependent on the local context. Yeah, I, I think if I could just maybe dig a bit into this as well, Jacob, actually, because if, if in the if you were to speak to a Western politician or policymaker and you were to do sort of snap reactions, if you were to say the word or the term BRI, they would almost automatically associate that with what they would call debt trap diplomacy. You know, uh, in, in simplest terms, we we, the Chinese government or Chinese company, loan you X amount of money and then as collateral, we take on the project if you fail to pay back your debts. is like the most simplified version of that. In your experience, and with the obvious caveat that there's a lot of complexity here, how true when you're on the ground does it feel like there is this idea about debt trap diplomacy? And I guess tied into that, how much in your experience of the BRI expansion over the last 10 years is actually being strategized and coordinated from Beijing? I think the two problems with the debt trap narrative are um, the sort of assumption of some kind of malicious intent on Beijing's part and as you alluded to the idea that everything's being strategized from Beijing my impression of the BRI on the ground is very much that it's a, a messy ad hoc grouping of projects and state-owned enterprises um, elites in host countries and other actors have more control over what's going on um, than is assumed. I don't think it makes sense anyway, just from a sort of logical um, perspective for Beijing, even if they were sort of overriding these actors on the ground for Beijing to try and get countries to default on debt, essentially. I think from a perspective of increasing their global influence, it would make more sense for uh, countries to be Sort of more sustainably hooked on Chinese finance. And then I think there has been a lot of empirical research debunking this debt trap myth, stuff from Chatham House and, and Rhodium Group. There's basically two examples. There's the, the one example, which uh, I think was cited by um, the man who coined this debt trap diplomacy stuff, Brahmachalani, the Pambantota port in Sri Lanka. Um, which was handed over to a Chinese company um, when Sri Lanka was struggling to pay debts. And then I think 2011, Tajikistan handed over some land to pay off some debts. And there may be a couple other examples I'm not recalling, but there are basically very few instances of it actually happening. And in the most part, Beijing tends to renegotiate debts rather than seize uh, assets. 
one of the things you just mentioned there, which I thought was really interesting, there, there's an impression in, let's just call it the global West, that China is this, this monolith and it has this overarching grand plan. But the Belt and Road you just mentioned there is actually just more about branding and sort of reframing what the Chinese are doing globally. So, you know, is it essentially a marketing exercise from the Chinese? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Belt and Road Initiative is to me. It's a marketing slogan. It doesn't actually exist, especially at moments like these when we have a lot of coverage of the Belt and Road due to the Belt and Road Forum. It's something that I just want to scream at the top of my lungs because it feels like a lot of the reports are taking Xi Jinping uh, at his word when he talks about these economic corridors and all these sort of grandiose, um, all this grandiose rhetoric about building the Belt and Road, but there isn't actually sort of any institutional reality to it. It's not really a development platform. Um, there's no, you know, international secretariat or regular meetings or a blueprint or a project pipeline. Um, it's just a slogan for a very wide range of things. And it's unlike a brand, actually, if you think about it, a brand at least has a headquarters uh, controlling its application, it's protected by copyright. BRI doesn't have that. Anyone can choose to brand their own stuff they're doing as BRI. There's been a couple of instances in the past where Chinese embassies have pushed back against uh, illegal um, criminals sort of branding their cryptocurrency operations as BRI. And they've said, <laughs> hang on a minute, actually, no, this isn't BRI. But it's, it's quite rare that that even happens. Again, when we talk about, sorry, BRI branding, whatever we decide, I mean, could you just kind of give a bit of an explanation about the global reach of the, the, the overall project or the overall branding? Because as you mentioned, it seems to cover every corner of the planet. Sure. So in terms of what's in a name, the Belt and Road Initiative, we have the Silk Road Economic Belt, which was announced by Xi Jinping in October 2013 in Kazakhstan. And then you have the Maritime Silk Road, 21st Century Maritime Silk Road, announced in Indonesia a month later. And these two parts are the, on the one hand, continental Europe-China focused part through um, Central Asia. And then you have the Maritime Silk Road, Southeast Asia, uh, maritime connections, both um, are loaded with lots of rhetoric about the glorious uh, Silk Road past. There are six corridors underneath the Silk Road Economic Belt and three, uh, I think, blue passages underneath the Maritime Silk Road. And that's the sort of general framework. But in terms of what that actually means, not very much. Um, there's five cooperation priorities, there, which are uh, infrastructure, policy coordination, trade, finance, and people to people. So as you might imagine, that covers everything, everything. literally yeah. Archaeological exchanges, nuclear power, um, film, it's all potentially BRI. And actually, although we focus a lot on this infrastructure dimension, especially the loan financed infrastructure, I think because you know, that's where the money is, first of all. And secondly, because it's something China maybe does a little bit differently and it's, it's more interesting. But in official uh, rhetoric, what's stressed a lot of the time is this people to people connectivity stuff. Um, even from the very early days, these five cooperation priorities were already in the speech um, when Xi Jinping announced this stuff and people-to-people -people connect connections and building friendship with uh, China's neighbours was very important. Mm. So as I understand it, and as you sort of spelled out there, it's a hugely wide-reaching 
marketing campaign, whatever we decide to sort of end with. Um, over the summer, we saw a lot of talk around Italy sort of tearing up its agreement to be a BRI nation. But it was interesting from an outside perspective, watching the political discourse versus the academic and expert discourse, because the way that I viewed it was the former were of the view that Italy was effectively in bed with Beijing on this, and they were going to be very like willing and able BRI partners, uh, while the latter were saying, actually, that was never really the case at all. Can you give some sort of clarity, Jacob, around what was going on with the BRI in Italy? Sure. So what Beijing means, or what commentators maybe mean when they talk about the country joining the BRI is that they mean this country at a sort of high level at a governmental level has signed a memorandum, non-legally binding document on quote unquote jointly building the Belt and Road Initiative with China. And that's about it. Um, they've sat down and they've signed a document that it does list country-specific priorities to some extent, but it's very broad and abstract as much as all the BRI policy papers are. And that's the extent of it. So it's purely symbolic when China talks about 150-plus countries having signed up to the BRI. That's that's what they mean. It's a high-level political endorsement of the initiative. So there's not really anything to leave. Italy isn't leaving anything in concrete sense it's just i guess symbolically leaving it's signaling its uh, <laughs> displeasure with the bri and going the other way so it's all about signaling to the the us or i i, I suppose and I think, well, I mean, first of all, important to note there, Steve, that the MOU I've signed with you about paying you a salary, that is not legally binding. <laughs> <laughs> so take note of that. You're Sam Hawks, but I, PA. I, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The good to have one of those, actually. Um, so I, I, you know, talking about the sort of marketing idea about the BRI then, what, what I find interesting with that as well is if that is a sort of thematic overviewing, sort of overarching concept, where do these different initiatives that have popped up come from? So in the, in the, the, the excellent two-page we're going to be disseminating with this podcast you put together, Jacob, you list, I believe, and I could be wrong here, four different initiatives, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative, and the new one, the Global Data Security Initiative, and sorry, another one, the Global Artificial Intelligence Governance Initiative. That's five, not four. What are these, if not marketing components of the BRI? Or are, there a, are they a separate thing? Right. That's a good question. I think they are separate marketing slogans, perhaps, would be the best way to put them. Uh, so chronologically, Data Security Initiative 2020, um, then you have the Global Development Initiative 2021, and that's the United Nations General Assembly by Xi Jinping, then Global Security Initiative 2022, and then you've got this Global Civilization Initiative getting a bit more recent this year, in, in, in March at this um, Chinese Communist Party event with international party leaders. And then finally, as you said, you've got this artificial intelligence initiative at the Belt and Road Forum this year. Um, and there's a lot of, again, grandiose rhetoric around them. Um, I don't see any of them as particularly substantial. They're all about pushing a particular narrative. The development initiative is quite an interesting one because it's more similar to the BRI, I suppose. It's less distinguishable than the others. I haven't quite wrapped my head around the, the concept behind it, but I think it's mainly about pushing um, China as a responsible development actor. It's all about sustainable development goals, about the UN, 
whereas the BRI is more connectivity focused. The GDI is about poverty alleviation and stuff like that. Um, data security, interesting mix of Chinese interests and then points aimed at ameliorating concerns about China. So, you know, companies shouldn't put backdoors in software, that kind of stuff. And we don't do that. That's terrible. And, yeah. um, and then Global Security Initiative, I think that's fairly straightforward. Anti-NATO opposing formation of blocks, promoting this concept of indivisible security used to justify Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then the Civilization Initiative is... I think about sort of pushing China's moral relativism, really saying human rights and values uh, aren't universal. Um, it talks about keeping an open mind when it, appreciating the values of different civilizations and that countries should refrain from imposing their own values and stoking ideological confrontation. And then again, the AI initiative, I think, is about the US. It comes after further restrictions on um, China's access to advanced chips. And it's about it's opposing the idea of forming exclusive groups to obstruct other countries from AI development. So uh, another concept you can link to them is this um, community of common destiny. I think it's officially translated into English now as something like community of shared future with ham- humankind <laughs> or, or something. But um, it's essentially about getting the whole world on the same page as China. Uh, lots of rhetoric around harmony and win-win, etc. cetera. Um, but it was, it was first used by Xi Jinping's predecessor, uh, Hu Jintao, to talk about peripheral diplomacy, about China's immediate neighborhood, and then it was applied to Taiwan, to Asia, and now it's about getting the whole world kind of on the same harmonious page as China. And these initiatives are all... Um, various ways of doing that but they're all pushing uh, I guess quite a simple narrative really of opposition and in terms of substance institutional substance uh, I don't think there any, is any yet. So through brand BRI China is clearly filling a global void countries that need and want infrastructure financing development modernization um, so we always hear global west criticizing the BRI my question to that has always been kind of what is the West's response or what's what's the alternative? But to kind of move past that maybe simplistic question, has it moved now beyond the point of no return for a lot of these countries? They sort of have to choose between China or the global West. Um, or is that too simplistic? Um, are there areas of mutual cooperation or is it a zero-sum game? You know, it's either or. So two parts, I think, to my answer in terms of countries choosing between the West or China. Um, there may come a point as tensions worsen that they, they are forced into this corner. And I think they have, some have been in the past with regards to Huawei as US increases, uh, increased its pressure. But generally speaking, I think a lot of countries um, are more actively practicing what you might call multi-vector foreign policy, just thinking about Kazakhstan and, and Serbia. I think Serbia is probably a good example of a country that has, I think, been fairly successful at this in terms of balancing between China and the EU. Um, Serbia's president, Alexander Vucic, was very much carved out a niche for him himself, maybe alongside Hungary's Viktor Orban as China's real uh, steel ally in Europe. And 
he's managed to get a lot of Chinese money for infrastructure in Serbia. But at the same time, he's been hanging this sort of threat of the EU almost and has also managed to get some get some money, extra money from the EU. He, I think he's in the past even said about a railway line, if the EU aren't going to fund this, we'll turn to China. The EU ended up funding it. So I think there's still room for countries to balance. It's, it's a dangerous game, of course. I'm trying to think there's, a, I think there's an Indian proverb, isn't there, about grass being trampled by fighting elephants or something along those lines. But if they play the game smartly, I think there's a lot of room to benefit. And I also wanted to mention something about the cooperation, um, which I think is quite interesting, uh, is that you have this narrative of competition, of course, but then if you actually look on the ground at a lot of projects, cooperation exists, um, not, not at a high, high level, not an official level. That failed. 2015, EU tried establishing a connectivity platform with China. I think it still exists on paper, but it didn't really go anywhere. They tried to sort of synergize the BRI and EU plans, and Chinese weren't interested, basically, I don't think. Um, but on the ground, you have um, money from European Bank for Reconstruction and Development building, for example, green energy projects in Uzbekistan. These projects are being built by Chinese companies. Um, you have lots of uh, Saudi and Emirati companies developing these projects, contracting them to Chinese, taking money from German and French state development funds. So I think on the ground, the picture of cooperation emerges more, but it's not cooperation that people want to talk about because of the, the tensions and the narrative of competition. And in terms of Western alternatives to the Belt and Road Initiative, yeah, over the year, recent years, we've had things like the Global Gateway from the EU, which were, even if they didn't explicitly say so, definitely aimed at countering the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm a little less harsh on the Global Gateway than other people are. I don't think it's gone anywhere particularly, but I wasn't expecting it to. I think the main lesson they actually uh, took from the BRIs is along the lines of the one I'm, the point I'm making that it's just a brand and they're now branding stuff they already fund as Global Gateway. I just think they're less successful in doing that because of the nature of the EU being made up of lots of member states that don't necessarily want to brand things as Team EU. They want it Team Europe. They want to brand them as Team France or Germany or whatever. So they're facing challenges there. And then the other point is that I think the narrative faces more challenges in that there was a much more fertile ground for this idea of China's rise, China offering an alternative. You know, countries were maybe fed up with the Western model of development finance and were looking for something else. And they were keen on this idea of a China with deep pockets. So the BRI narrative found fertile ground already, um, which doesn't exist for these alternatives, which brings me to, I think, one of the main points I make about these alternatives is that they're not really alternatives. They came first, right? The EU was already a big player in global development finance. And then the BRI, to some extent, was the, the challenger. And then what we're seeing is a kind of counter response where the EU and other actors are trying to brand their um, initiatives a certain way. I think there's also uh, an element of thinking that China's more strategic in its um, projects, in its, in its lending, which 
as I've mentioned before, I'm not sure is entirely true. I don't think there is a, a very well implemented grand strategy um, behind all of this. But I think the perception, perhaps because um, EU policymakers were taking Xi Jinping at face value with what he was saying about the BRI, there was this impression that they they were. Um, and, you know, there are these cliches that we're familiar with about China thinking in 100-year time spans and being a million steps ahead of everywhere else. So I think that contributes to this idea. So there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast who work for an MP, who could be MPs themselves, uh, who are running to be MPs, working around Whitehall, work in the Foreign Office, MOD, Department of Business and Trade, et cetera, et cetera. If you could sort of summarize in one sentence something that you wish could be tattooed onto the top of every single BRI-focused debate or conversation taking place, what is one thing that you would just implore people especially Western policymakers and their researching teams, to just have a top of mind when we talk about the BRI? Is it, is it that it is we give it too much um, autonomy and power and strategic noose when it's just a sort of a marketing thing? Or is it that we actually miss on the severity of the threat in some countries because we're too busy focusing on other parts? What, what sort of area would you like them to just bang? That's the, that's the first bullet point. I think the message would be the BRI isn't real. Stop talking about it. But to, maybe to add a little bit more nuance and, and value, I would advise people to stop taking BRI at face value and to be a little bit more cynical when looking at official rhetoric on the BRI. I think it's really important to follow these concepts and to look at the rhetoric and to read Xi Jinping's speeches and everything. But I think we should be cynical about them. And I by that, I don't mean to say that I think UK policymakers are naive about China or believing all this win-win stuff. I don't think that's the case. Uh, but even if you're hawkish on China, I think there's still a tendency to um, take stuff a little bit too literally in a, in a, in, in a kind of um, in, assuming some sort of malicious intent, but also that it's this really successful, coherent strategy. That isn't the case. But then at the same time, I would say don't underappreciate the power of narrative. And I think this is another thing um, that maybe people get wrong. We, we do the same thing when we're talking about Russia, I think, is assuming that the way we feel about certain things is the way the rest of the world feels about certain things. So um, these narratives do have quite a lot of appeal in what China is increasingly calling the global south. And that's something we need to be aware of and have some, I think, humility about really. Jacob, thank you so much. Just as a, as a reminder to the audience, we would have said this at the beginning of the podcast, but in the footnotes, uh, the reading notes of this podcast is a two-pager that Jacob has put together aimed you know, primarily at people who are working in policy spaces on this issue. It's very clear. It breaks down basically everything you've heard there into concise terms. Great if your company is also working in both UK and China or in any of the hundreds of countries that are allegedly uh, signed up to this marketing slogan. But thank you, Jacob, for your time. That has been absolutely fantastic. So moving on, and this is actually related to the Belt and Road in, in, in many ways, Sam. There's been a very notable visit in Beijing that doesn't seem to be picked up by many, but was picked up by Sam Hogg, the founder of Beijing Britain, in his briefing this week. And that was that Tony Blair, Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who now runs the Tony Blair Global Institute, was in China. And he had some quite important meetings. So could you just break it down? Tell us, tell us what happened and what he was doing there. 
Sure. So, you know, a sort of TBI versus BRI for competition for headlines and neither of them getting them. But so Tony Blair, sorry, was in China, as you say, this, this week just passed. He had two high profile meetings that were documented. Um, the first is with uh, director of the Office of Foreign Affairs Commission, Wang Yi, and then also VP Han Zhang. Uh, both of them separate. And both of them, if we get the Chinese readouts, which is the only readouts we have, seem to indicate that the Chinese side are very keen to start building their relationship with the Labour Party. Now, as I discussed in this week's briefing just gone by, we can probably take away a couple of things from this. The first is that emphasis from the Chinese Communist Party to try and build its legitimacy and its direct communications line with Tony Blair. Because Tony Blair, through his Tony Blair Institute and through also his obviously reputation uh, as a former leader of the party, has links to the leadership right now, uh, Keir Starmer. And the TBI, formally or informally, is very likely quite influential in helping that party think about how it's going to form its China policy. So that's the first takeaway. I think the second takeaway that's very interesting and the sort of uh, other side of the coin would be an indication that uh, the Chinese Communist Party leadership has stopped caring so much about the Conservative Party and they're not seeking to build those relationships perhaps. Perhaps there's a level of hedging going on or the belief that the Tories might actually lose the next general election. A shocking concept to consider. And then the third part is really what they were sort of discussing there. And there was lots of sort of classic language you see from the Chinese official readouts, stuff like there can be a win-win, we can build uh, areas for cooperation, climate change is mentioned. These are all things that would be indicating to me as an observer that these are areas the Chinese government would look to prioritize working with a potential Labour government under. But that all uh, takes into account to various levels that Tony Blair acts as a back channel into the party. Who knows? Who knows? It's just us, us speculating. The meetings that Tony Blair had are extremely high level. You, you don't just get them. I and mean, even actually, if the current sitting government went over, I don't, you know, it would be a challenge to get those meetings. So for Tony Blair to actually get them, really critical. And again, demonstrate his reputation. What I do think is interesting, and I'd love to dig into, is the Tony Blair Global Institute. Now, arguably, this could be Tony Blair's biggest legacy, biggest legacy more so than his prime ministerial role with the United Kingdom, because he's, the Global Institute is so ingrained in so many different countries and so many different countries' political systems. Again, advising them, consulting on them, um, you know, how to govern. So do you personally have any a bit more insight into that, or is this something we should look into a bit more? I think it's something that's worth looking into a bit more. I mean... A quick uh, sort of scroll through the the TBI website would show that they operate with a variety of of African governments, helping them put together good policy, helping them inform their decision-making process. But obviously, that's a two-way relationship in the sense of if you are working with these governments, you're understanding what their challenges are and what their issues are. And so in a way, you get the situation where the TBI almost becomes like an unofficial FCDO to an extent, and that it has a huge outreach and loads of really fascinating information feeding back into the HQ. And so that's why I personally, I'm always interested to see what the TBI Institute publishes, because I tend to take the view that it's an end product of not just the people sitting in London, but people throughout the world feeding back into those documents. But I think, Steve, to pick up on a point you sort of raised at the beginning there, you know, as a man who has had to organize more than his fair or justified share of ministerial visits to China and, and those sort of meetings, how would I go about, if I was the junior minister in the Department for Trade, how would I go about trying to secure a meeting with someone like Wang Yi? Would that even be on the cards? That's a great question, Sam. And that's a very tough question to answer because they're actually not as easy as you think. 
let's just, you know, when, when we were sort of going through the golden era or on the back of the golden era, the UK and China would host a multitude of bilateral um, ministerial dialogues. And, you know, that would be everything from supporting trade and investment to cultural ties. So something which we might come on to because we've heard rumblings of a upcoming or potential upcoming JETCO, but JETCO, Joint Economic and Trade Commission, would take place. We'd have the economic and financial dialogue. Um, just to mention the cultural exchanges, there would be people-to-people exchanges, people-to-people dialogue. That was led by the, um, the British Council. There was then also prime minister's dialogues. So there was a multitude. I mean, that's not to mention IP. There was also climate change, uh, COP collaboration, uh, green financing. So to mention previously, you know, and this was sort of five, four or five years ago, there would be lots of engagement at both a ministerial level, at junior ministerial level, not to mention just the working relations taking place. And so a big part of these meetings and these trips would be quite formulaic. They would be set up well in advance because there would be something for which both sides are trying to push through. So, so the best way to kind of go about some of these meetings would be to kind of tag them onto a set piece ministerial activity, which would really make the difference from the, from the Chinese side. And so a big part of that would also be signaling. So when we're talking about these ministerial engagements, it's also about signaling. It's signaling that the UK and China are open for collaboration, are open for trade and investment ties, and, and they would be done through these ministerial visits. So if a junior minister was to go out right now to, to China, there would have to be a clear reason for him to do that. Obviously, we're operating in a political environment where just on the back of Cleverly's visit, it seems slight normalization. I don't want to say normal because I don't know what that means anymore, but it, it seems that sort of economic trade relationships can be discussed uh, more openly because of the signals that James Cleverly has sent because of Lord Johnson, you know, taking his visit. So if these visits would take place, that was probably the best way around it. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I, th- I think that leads quite neatly onto a, a, a reciprocal visit or a visit we've had to London last week. Director General Yu Yuan-Ton, could you give me some sort of background as to who this person is, Steve, and why they might be in London? Yes. So great point. So Director General Yu Yuan-Ton is the Director General for the European Department, specifically covering the United Kingdom. He was being in London. Now, we don't know exactly why. We've heard rumblings. But just to mention, he is a very amenable, intelligent, diligent official. And frankly speaking, he's one of the most important people, influential people around the UK-China bilateral relationship. So he's here in the UK. And again, this is kind of comes back to our previous conversations. He might be in place in London to kind of set up pre-conversations for what might be uh, the Joint Economic and Trade Commission, Joint Economic and Trade Dialogue, which would be really important. And why is it important? Because Effectively, this goes back to signaling. This is signaling the two countries' desire to boost trade and investment deals. And again, a lot of this would be kind of discussions behind closed doors. So as mentioned in these ministerial visits, you know, you think you get the minister in a room and they sort of thrash it out and they really go through all the issues. That doesn't happen. All the issues, all the talking points are more or less decided before they go into the room. Both sides, both the Chinese and the UK, are looking for market access issues to kind of make a difference on and push. So right now they will be speaking to the British Chamber of Commerce in China, the China Britain Business Council, to kind of feed into some of the the overarching issues that um, would make a big difference for, for UK trade and investment. And the Chinese side would be doing the same, looking for business deals to kind of celebrate as a win, I suppose. 
politically, it'll be fascinating to see if Jetco is resumed, because obviously, I think if, if Jetco is resumed, you will see a, a lot of backbench anger. There's still the view, I would say, within Parliament that the government has not managed to separate economic relations with China from raising human rights issues and values issues consistently. And so they still believe that the government is committing to the engage part more than any other of the other three pillars, the protect and align part. And actually, it'd be very worth watching closely to see how Labour's language goes on around any potential. I mean, we're still, as I say, Steve, you know, speculating at this stage around Jetco. But if Jetco is resumed or is back on tracks, Labour will be asked to take a view. And if they take the view that this is a terrible idea, and we shouldn't be normalizing economic ties with a country that is, you know, committing human rights atrocities in Xinjiang and threatening Taiwan, that may well be very politically uh, sound for them in the very short term. But if Labour are in power next year, and the Chinese want to do Jetco then, they'd be like, oh, well, suddenly actually Jetco's all right by our definition of how we do these things. And good luck answering to your MPs or to the opposition MPs about how you've managed to you know, to use one of the favorite terms, flip-flop on, on that. So they'll have to play their cards pretty sophisticatedly, or the level of sophistication, I should say. The thing I will say, though, is, is the Chinese are incredibly smart. You know, they are very good at making bilateral agreements with countries rather than multilateral agreements with countries. So again, the UK could, you know, right now be looking at the best possible options for some of the trading relationships and improvements that they could make. And I agree with you when you talk about some of the, what what Labour could be saying. But let's just take us back to almost exactly this time last year, a little bit previously, but this was exactly around the time that the, the Prime Minister's husting debates were taking place. Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak. Now, at the beginning of 2022, Rishi Sunak, as Chancellor, was trying to re-establish joint economic trade dialogue. That, that was a big push that he, he was trying to do as the Chancellor. Now, fast forward six months to the debate, Liz Truss was weaponizing that very fact that he was trying to push through trade dialogue or trade talk with China. So, you know, again, we fast forward one year, you know, there is now rumblings that these dialogues would take place because of signaling that's clearly taken place on both sides to tone down the rhetoric and start moving forward in a, in a, in a manner which may be beneficial to our country. So things can shift quite quickly. And, and I think just to mention as well, the last JETCO was five, six years ago. You know, this was 2018. This was when, and I had to look into it, was the previous international trade secretary was, was Liam Fox. And so the big promotion, the big win that they got was overcoming dairy bans and overcoming beef bans. And that had an enormous impact to the agricultural market here in the UK. I would actually love to look into the statistics because at the time it was said, overcoming some of these market access issues, overcoming the restrictions on, on dairy and beef into the UK was going to have between 300 to 500 million pounds improvements to UK exports over five years. We're five years on. So if someone could tell us the trade figures, that would be fantastic. But the, the point is, these things can make an enormous difference. And again, I always go back down to the rhetoric can make an enormous difference as well. I mean, it's a super, it's a, it's a really fair point. And you're absolutely right to point out the um, the nature of how quickly the political winds and rhetoric change in Westminster to suit people's agendas. And I think Jetco relaunching, if it does relaunch, will absolutely draw criticism. The question is, will Downing Street make the exact decision that the criticism is just worth ignoring or will they engage with it or will they just write it off and same with labor because for the reasons you've outlined there if you can make the case that actually you know as rachel reeves has jetco does 
fall under our securonomics vision for economic engagement with the rest of the world, then then you're laughing from Labour's point of view. You know, that's easy. And they may well say, look, we'll still do JETCO if we have this UK-China audit because actually it fits into these categories here. But uh, it'll be fascinating to watch develop. And, and again, we're just speculating at this stage, but whether it actually comes back into existence or perhaps we're going to get a sort of Frankenstein JETCO type thing with a new snazzier name, TBC. <laughs> TBC. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> So, Steve, look, what else is there to add into this equation? So there's four really important days in a Chinese year, uh, and that is every quarter when they bring out GDP figures in China. I don't know if this takes place in other countries, but I think it's because of the 20, 30 years of massive growth that China has had. So announcing GDP figures have always been such an important part of the the Chinese economy and Chinese signaling and Chinese messaging. Um, They take extreme pride in that. Now, over the last few years, they haven't been as good as predicted. But the latest figures for quarter three came out, uh, Q3 came out, and they were above average, which, well, they were above the predicted um, 4.4%, and they were at 4.9%, not quite at the 6.4% that they were hoping for. But essentially, this kind of goes back to what one of our previous episodes that we, we had with your certain parts of the Chinese economies are doing really well, certain parts are doing really poorly. So we know, goes back to the housing crisis, uh, the real estate market doing really badly, really struggling. But then on the other side, consumption, retail sales, F&B, cars, both petrol and electrical vehicles, it's doing a lot better than than, um, than predicted. So again, what people are describing in China, cautious optimism that the economy is bouncing back. As mentioned, kind of the big majority of 2023, it's done pretty poorly. It hasn't had that rebound post-COVID. So this is kind of the green shoots of optimism coming through from the Chinese economy. Something to watch. Indeed. Let's see if it plays out uh, that way at the next set of results. Before we go, we have been reminded multiple times by our excellent producer to plug this podcast. We need to say, please like and subscribe on all our platforms, whether that be Apple or Spotify. But in the meantime, Steve, I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. We can discuss, I believe we're discussing critical minerals actually next week with a with an expert. Critical minerals. So critical minerals questions, get them in. What do you want to know about? What don't you know? Steve and I will be your vehicle and vassals to ask those questions.